Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. Every one of my books except for one has a chapter about crime. And in all but one case, those chapters are about the New York City crime problem of the 90s and how people dealt with it. So, I mean, it was a subject of enormous kind of morbid fascination for me. I have written about law enforcement, how it works and doesn't work almost obsessively since then. Tipping Point is a big chapter that I no longer particularly believe, but I believe back then because your feelings about how police ought to behave are very different when you've come out of a period where you feel like the city was out of control. You know, and Blink ends with the story of a police shooting, right? This long account making sense of a, how the police shot an innocent guy, Amadou Diallo. Shot him like, I forgot how many times, 32 times, whatever it was, on his front porch for doing nothing more than reaching for his wallet to show him his ID. Um, I mean, it was like you, Amanda, going to Perugia. It was a novel problem for me. Never had to think this way about human beings before. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. If you're a fan of the podcast Revisionist History, you probably recognize that voice. It's that of Malcolm Gladwell, author of enormously popular books such as The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. Even if you haven't read his books, you've likely absorbed some of the pithy and counterintuitive ideas that have helped make him a household name. The law of the few. The stickiness factor. Thin slicing. The 10,000-hour rule. Gladwell has made it his mission to translate academic work for a popular audience, and to do so in a way that is often contrary to popular wisdom. To his fans, he's an intellectual provocateur with an enthusiasm for counterintuitive modes of thought, illustrated by colorful anecdotes and supported by fascinating research that provides explanatory insight into the mysteries of the everyday. To his detractors, well... In 1725, the Chevalier de Marche, a French cartographer, explorer, and captain of a slave ship, was traveling the coast of West Africa when he discovered something curious. Before consuming palm wine and gruel, the locals would chew on a small red berry, which was not particularly sweet itself, but which, miraculously, made the sour palm wine and gruel taste delightfully sweet. The berry of this plant, Sensepalum dulcificum, came to be known as the miracle fruit. Of course, there's nothing miraculous about it. The berry contains a glycoprotein called miraculin, which binds to the sweetness receptors on the tongue, causing sour foods to taste sweet. A ban by the FDA has kept it from popularity as a sugar substitute. To those who write Gladwell off, he's the miracle fruit of public intellectuals. He makes dry research exciting. He dissects serious social ills like crime or police violence, and finds reason for optimism. He turns the sour sweet. But sweetness is the tongue's way to tell the body to expect calories from sugar. And like the miracle fruit, his critics say he delivers an empty promise. We don't see him that way, but an evocative metaphor can be thought-provoking, even if it's not quite right. Incidentally, that's how we feel about Gladwell's take on Amanda. We're not normally in the business of critiquing the people we interview. We're usually far more interested in their subjective experience. But since Gladwell trained his critical eye on me, it's only fair, in the spirit of friendly debate, to turn our critical eye on him. In the fall of 2019, 
I was surprised to receive an email from Gladwell asking my permission to use excerpts from the audiobook of my memoir, Waiting to be Heard, in his new book, Talking to Strangers. When you reached out to me um, to ask permission to use parts of my audiobook, my first thought was, I've been Gladwelled! <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> um, I think that means that you've applied psychology and human behavior theory in a novel way to my life. Uh-huh. I think that's what that means. Do you think that's accurate? Um, yeah, I think that's probably. I, I've never thought of it. I've never thought of applying my name to the process. But um, <laughs> yes, you were a, a case study. And I, you know, I'm always looking for interesting case studies. So, yeah, I don't, I've never thought about what it must mean to be the subject of a case study like that. I thank you for your uh, graciousness through the whole process. We read Gladwell's chapter on Amanda's case and came away feeling conflicted. I wrote him as much over email. And after a back and forth unpacking some of our disagreements about my case, I asked him for an interview and we ended up discussing his decades-long obsession with crime in New York City and prejudice against young Black men. But before we get to that discussion, we're going to examine Gladwell's chapter on Amanda's wrongful conviction. For his theory of why justice went awry in her case forms an interesting counterpoint to the problem of how we deal with violent crime and the process entire communities go through to escape otherness. Gladwell was gracious enough to share excerpts of his audiobook with us. His chapter on Amanda begins in a straightforward and, frankly, refreshing way. On the night of November 1st, 2007, Meredith Kircher was murdered by Rudy Gooday. After a mountain of argumentation, speculation, and controversy, his guilt is a certainty. Gooday had a criminal history. He admitted to being in Kircher's house the night of her murder and could only give the most implausible reasons for why. The crime scene was covered with his DNA. After Kircher's body was discovered, he immediately fled Italy for Germany. This is refreshing because I routinely get asked if the real killer was ever found. And people are shocked to learn that Rudy Gaudet was tried and convicted long before my own trial ever reached a verdict. So I'm incredibly grateful when anyone talking about this saga brings this fact up as point number one. The obviousness of Gaudet's guilt is part of why Gladwell calls the case completely inexplicable in hindsight. There was never any physical evidence linking either Knox or her boyfriend to the crime. Nor was there ever a plausible explanation for why Knox, an immature, sheltered, middle-class girl from Seattle, would be interested in engaging in murderous sex games. The police investigation against her was revealed as shockingly inept. The analysis of the DNA evidence supposedly linking her and Solicita to the crime was completely botched. The puzzle for Gladwell is why the investigators, the prosecution, and the international media focused so intensely on Amanda when she clearly had nothing to do with the crime. I could give you a point-by-point analysis of what was wrong with the investigation of Kircher's murder. It could easily be the length of this book. Instead of all that, let me give you the simplest and shortest of all possible Amanda Knox theories. Her case is about transparency. If you believe that the way a stranger looks and acts is a reliable clue to the way they feel, then you're going to make mistakes. Amanda Knox was one of those mistakes. Gladwell is right. The way someone looks or acts is not a reliable clue to the way they feel. We're truth-biased. For what turns out to be good reasons, we give people the benefit of the doubt and assume the people we're talking to are being honest. So Gladwell's question is, if we default to truth, then why didn't people give me the benefit of the doubt? His answer is that it must be something about me. We tend to judge people's honesty based on their demeanor. Well-spoken, confident people with a firm handshake, those who are friendly and engaging, are seen as believable. Nervous, shifty, stammering, uncomfortable people who give windy, convoluted explanations are not seen as believable. 
Gladwell is basing his theory here off the work of psychologist Tim Levine, whose research attempts to show the importance of demeanor in how and why we succeed or fail at judging whether someone is being honest. Levine refers to the liars in his study who seem suspicious and the truth-tellers who appear sincere as matched senders. Their demeanor matches their inner state. Whereas the honest-seeming liars and the insincere-seeming truth-tellers are mismatched. So what was Amanda Knox's problem? She was mismatched. She's the innocent person who acts guilty. Is she, though? Gladwell is making an assumption here that the way someone looks or acts is accurately perceived, remembered, or reported without the distortion of selection bias and confirmation bias. That is, he takes the record of my behavior as unquestionable fact and tries to draw conclusions from it instead of asking whether the observers of my behavior may have seen what they wanted to see. In short, Gladwell is looking in the wrong direction. To discover the reason everyone mistakenly focused on me, he focuses on me, instead of on everyone else in the equation, the investigators, the prosecutor, and international media, who had far more power and agency. Matched people conform with our expectations. Their intentions are consistent with their behavior. The mismatched are confusing and unpredictable. I'd do things that would embarrass most teenagers and adults, walking down the street like an Egyptian or an elephant, but that kids found fall over hilarious. That's from my audiobook, and wow, I can't believe how young I sound. When I wrote Waiting to be Heard, I was 24, fresh out of prison, and still blaming myself in a lot of ways for what had happened to me. If only I'd done this, if only I hadn't said that. It took me a long time and forming close friendships with many other wrongfully convicted people to realize that my mild eccentricity was irrelevant. And more to the point, a dishonest demeanor, as defined in Levine's studies, is not at all synonymous with Amanda's silly side. So what was the evidence of my supposed dishonest demeanor? Kircher's murder in Perugia changed the way their circle of friends behaved. They wept quietly, hushed their voices, murmured their sympathies. But Knox didn't. Let's hope she didn't suffer, Natalie said. What do you think? They cut her throat, Natalie. She fucking bled to death, Amanda retorted. In a situation that typically calls for a sympathetic response, Knox had been loud and angry. To Gladwell's credit, he affirms Amanda's statement that everyone reacts differently to something horrible. She's right. Why can't someone be angry in response to a murder rather than sad? But it's not just that reactions to trauma vary across a population. It's also true that a single person's reaction to something traumatic can vary minute by minute. I reacted to Meredith's murder in all sorts of ways. I did weep. I did murmur my sympathies. I did speak in a hushed voice. I also freaked out. I was on a roller coaster of emotion. My friend had just been murdered, the killer was on the loose, and I was being questioned by authority figures twice my age in a language I understood as well as a child. But which moments got observed? Which got recorded for posterity? Which became evidence in a Gladwellian case study? Certainly not the copious ones that conformed to expectation. Near the end of his chapter, Gladwell quotes something Amanda said in the Netflix documentary. There is no trace of me in the room where Meredith was murdered, Knox says, at the end of the Amanda Knox documentary. But you're trying to find the answer in my eyes? You're looking at me? Why? These are my eyes. They're not objective evidence. Gladwell seems to get the importance of what I said there. And yet... His take essentially boils down to the look in her eyes, that Amanda got wrongfully convicted because she's weird, and society doesn't know how to judge weirdos. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful whenever anyone cares enough about the injustice I suffered to try to figure out what the hell happened. 
Gladwell included. And there are some fascinating elements to his argument. But I think there's a better explanation. Dealing with a violent murder in a small, tourist-driven town, with the international media watching their every move, investigators were under immense pressure to solve this crime fast. It's why they coerced me into a false accusation against my boss, one which made me complicit in the crime. They arrested him and me and declared case closed. But when the forensics identified Rudy Gaudet two weeks later, the investigators couldn't admit they had been wrong without suffering tremendous reputational damage. The media, biased in favor of sensationalism, ran with the wildest story, sex game gone wrong. Both ignored physical and behavioral evidence that didn't fit their preferred narrative, and any hint in Amanda's behavior of something outside of normal was lifted out of context, distorted, and magnified in significance. Textbook confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, when part of a criminal investigation, often becomes what is known in the innocence world as tunnel vision. When tunnel vision is abetted by junk science, flawed forensics, and coercive interrogation techniques, investigators can end up with the wrong answer no matter who you are or how you act. A critic who profiled Gladwell for Esquire once asked him, would you prefer to be interesting or right? Gladwell responded, oh, interesting. I don't even know why that's a question. I'm a journalist. What journalist would rather be right than interesting? I've suffered the consequences of journalists preferring the interesting to the right, of people opting to believe the story about a man-eater psycho slut who orchestrated a deadly sex game, which was far more interesting than the right story, that a local burglar with a rap sheet, known to carry a knife, killed an exchange student in a burglary gone wrong. To be fair, Gladwell revised his thinking to that critic, saying, a better way of putting it is that I'd rather provoke you into thinking about your own position than recruit you to my side. That's a noble goal and one we identify with. Even more, we admire what Gladwell said in an interview with John Ronson for BBC's The Culture Show. If you haven't gotten things wrong, then you've never gotten anything right either, right? You've sort of, you haven't made any progress unless you're sort of willing to try out an argument. And I don't think you can be an honest journalist and not want to rewrite every book you've ever written. I'm hoping that one day he feels like rewriting this chapter. It's something he's done before. The book that launched his career, The Tipping Point, laid out an argument about the fall of crime in New York City in the 90s, one which earned him a lot of criticism later on for its support of broken windows policing, which many think places an undue burden on communities of color. But unlike the investigators in Amanda's case, Gladwell isn't one to dig in his heels. It's one of his most admirable traits. He's never afraid to reevaluate his own positions. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast is only possible thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. It was a very interesting question that you asked, and I spent a long time thinking about what the most appropriate strange journey was. And it's not an obvious one, but I realize it probably has had a huge impact on me. It was the experience of moving to New York. first time I ever visited New York was in 1990, the year in which New York was one of the most dangerous cities in the world, or at least in the developed world, and the most dangerous in its history. So in 1990, 2,600 people are murdered in New York City. By comparison, maybe 300 were murdered last year. So it's an, right. an insane difference. And what it meant was that crime completely dominated, not just the kind of public political conversation, but if you were someone who lived in New York or was thinking of moving to New York, that's what you thought about all day long. Mm -hmm. So at the height of the crime rave, I came for a weekend 
And my roommate drove me up from Washington, D.C. and dropped me off on, I can't believe he did this in retrospect, he literally drove off the George Washington Bridge right into the northern part of Harlem. Mm -hmm. He just dropped me off and left me there to kind of get a cab and get my way. And I remember being absolutely terrified. Oh. And I realized, oh, I'm not in a good neighborhood. Mm. And I've never been to the city before. I don't know where the subway is or whether it's safe to use the subway. I guess I have to find a cab. I don't see any cabs. It's getting dark. Despite this shock and how unsafe New York City felt, Gladwell moved to the city a few years later, in 1993. The city's still out of control. And the first thing is that social life, first of all, you only ever went out in groups. And secondly, at the end of the evening, the group got together and worked through how everyone was going to get home. Hmm. In this really super analytical, logical, paranoid way with different rules for men and women because women were more vulnerable. And if it's midnight, there's no way anyone's taking the subway. Do you have enough cash for a cab? If you don't, here's money, right? right? I'll stay with you until you get a cab. Are you okay from the cab to the front door of your apartment? Is there a doorman? Should I go with you in the cab, get out of the cab with you, walk you to your door, have the cab wait, get back in the cab? Like, crazy stuff. Like it's a war zone. Yeah. Right? It's that kind of thinking. And then call me when you get home. Like not in the kind of casual way that your mom says, no, no, like serious. You have to call me when you get home. <laughs> right? Wow. I mean, and it was not crazy. It's like, I was, I'm not a paranoid person. I am the furthest thing from a paranoid person. The thing about New York was that the menace was, seemed like it was everywhere. You couldn't escape from it. Hmm. And that was a new, a totally new experience for me. I remember how when I went to Perugia, one of the things that really screwed me over was the fact that, like, the idea that someone close to me could be murdered was so foreign to me yeah. that I was just confused um, and was going through a ton of emotions. But it sounds like, you know, you as a young adult were in a world where— murder was so commonplace that you couldn't go home at the end of the night without thinking that one of your friends had been murdered. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. I mean, it was, if you think about it, 2,690, I think that's the number, 2,690 murders is, uh, what is it, like eight a day in the city you're living in? <laughs> I mean. Did you go into like hypervigilant survival mode and ask yourself like, can I even give myself a five-year plan or am I going to be uprooted or altered by the sort of threat in the air such that you couldn't really have a vision of yourself that went past today or a week or a year? Like, did that affect your ability to view your own life? That's a really interesting question. I would say, I think it was more subtle than that. There were a variety of responses to these kind of exaggerated perceptions of threat. And one is that you essentially become traumatized. The other is that you simply retreat and defend yourself. And I think the second response is far more common. So you simply curtail your activities, you circle the wagons in your friendship circle, you plot at the end of the evening about how everyone's gonna get home, you never go to neighborhood X past a certain point at night. When you are old enough and you marry, you move to the suburbs. You know, those, all, those are the strategies I think that people were following. And I actually think that the, the disengagement is just as socially toxic as the kind of hmm. traumatizing route. When I look at the kind of particular moment we're in as a society now, what I see is not a lot of people traumatized by the other, but a lot of people who have disengaged with the other. Hmm. That they just, there's a, just a big world out there that looks really terrifying. They don't want to hear about it, learn about it, deal with them. You know, they just want to kind of lock the door. So I think I did, and everyone, all my friends, we all did a version of that second route. How did that affect like your relationship with, other New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, well, it sets up this dynamic where, and all I think all New Yorkers of that era went through this, 
where every stranger is a potential threat. And it has this effect of pushing things like age and race to the and gender to the fore. So hmm. young black men become, and I say this as someone who is half black, you know, I'm mixed race. Mm-hmm. Young black men become the thing that you're terrified of. Hmm. And not just white people. Black people are scared of young black men too. I mean, people right. forget this fact. And then if you are a young black man, of course, your life is even more profoundly affected because the whole world thinks of you as a potential threat. I am someone who feels that acutely because although I may not be identifiably black, all my cousins are, come and visit me. They're all young black men, right? Walking around Manhattan. Right. And I'm aware of the fact that, oh, the world is looking at my cousins who are, by the way, professionals. You know, they're not like, they're like (laughs) very successful. And I realize, oh, how is the world looking at them? You know, that's weird and upsetting. I grew up in rural Ontario where I don't think there has ever been a violent crime in the town I grew up with. There was like, for a town of 6,000, there was like one police officer. <laughs> hmm, yeah. So this is, for me, I was like you growing up. Like, I never occurred to me that anyone would even so much as lay a finger on me. And then I get to New York and it's just this kind of thing where you're just required to be suspicious for the first time. Um, I have a friend in New York. Maybe you know of him, uh, Professor Saul Casson. Have you ever oh, run into yeah. him at all? I've heard his, I've, I've, I know of him. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, cool. Professor Saul Casson, incidentally, has been a critic of psychologist Tim Levine's studies, especially in how they do not map to the real world and fail to address how false confessions can occur. One of the things that he and his students were looking into that's actually pertinent to um, your examination of my case was how people's like behavior is recontextualized once an accusation or threat is made clear. So like they're calling this the Philomena effect after one of my roommates. Mm-hmm. There were four of us roommates and the three of us who survived this situation um, were all looking to find another apartment together. And it wasn't until after I was arrested and accused that she suddenly started thinking that maybe I was a suspicious person. So it's only because there, an accusation is there or a threat is there that a person recontextualizes someone's behavior or demeanor or look or vibe mm-hmm. as suspicious or sinister. And I wonder if, like, that's a little bit what was happening on this, like, broad scale to young black men in New York, or is am I like stretching this? No, too no, far? no. I think that's exactly. I'm trying the, to Gladwell this experience. No, no, no. <laughs> I, for you, <laughs> I think that's exactly the phenomenon. So what happens is, in this case, the accusation is coming through the media. So if you have seven, eight murders on average a day in the city, that means that every time you turn on the television to watch the news, or every time you open a newspaper, you read about murders. And these murders are very, very often involve young minority men. Now, in the grand universe of New York City, they represent, of course, a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall population of young black men. But that's not what you're seeing in the news, right? You're seeing the same picture over and over again. Mm. And something happens in New York in the same period, which is for the first time, New York gets a 24-hour local cable news channel. From New York City's only all-news channel, this is New York One. News all morning. And they were, you know, super interested in these kinds of crimes, right? So, and then you have these high-profile crimes in the same era, you know, the Central Park Five, who were totally falsely accused, put in jail for years and years and years, right? They were victims of this same climate of suspicion. What happened in my case is a microcosm of this social trend. The media has a selection bias in favor of the salacious and the violent, which amplifies perceptions of threat, creates a false picture of how dangerous young black men are, and a climate of suspicion that can lead to wrongful convictions, like those of the Central Park Five. Were the victims of these murders mostly young black men too, or was it more broad than that? It's a really interesting question. You know, a lot of this was gang violence and drug violence, particularly in that era, right? It's the crack wars. Um, mm-hmm. So many of the victims are also young minority men. And then when the victim is of the kind of 
white middle class world, that case gets 10 times as much coverage. So that's what happens in the Central Park jogger case, right? The Central Park jogger is a young a white woman. And that case is on the headlines for weeks on end. I mean, it's just that is elevated above all the other crimes in the city precisely because of the nature of the victim. The nature of the accused matters too. In my case, because I defied expectation, I wasn't a young man with a criminal record, the headlines were explosive. But it cuts both ways. With the Central Park jogger case, it wasn't that the story defied expectation, but that it confirmed a pernicious stereotype of black-on-white crime that stoked fear and prejudice. Do you think that media coverage is what made this crime wave feel like an ever-present threat? Those numbers, the seven to eight murders a day, are they happening in concentrated clusters in certain neighborhoods? Is it actually spread evenly throughout the city, or is that a perception that you had, regardless of what the actual data showed? Well, there's two things going on. If you were a middle-class professional living in Midtown in 1990, what were your chances of being murdered? Virtually zero. So statistically, this was a kind of false alarm. The kinds of people who were getting worked up about this were exaggerating their risk of being murdered. Now, there's a separate thing, though. One is that the signs of disorder in the city were everywhere. Mm. So if you rode the subway, the subways really, really felt like they were, at least through the end of the 80s, that they were out of control. And it was based on lesser crimes. So what we were scared of at the end of the night was really probably about being mugged or if you're a woman being assaulted. That was a legit fear. Like you you could not walk through the uh, East Village at 2 a.m. on a Friday night and reasonably expect not to be accosted at some point. The other thing was everyone I know had a story, either that they had experienced directly or that a friend of theirs had experienced. So I remember one friend of mine lived in a relatively good neighborhood in Brooklyn telling me a story about confronting a man in the lobby of her apartment building who was clearly out to rape her. Mm. And she escaped. Now, every friend of that friend of mine heard that story. So it was very real to us. She came within a whisker of having her life profoundly altered in that moment. If navigating the threat-riddled New York City of the early 90s was a physical kind of labyrinth, requiring circuitous and carefully planned routes home each night, what happened next created a mental labyrinth, one Gladwell has been winding through ever since. I can't impress upon people, particularly people who did go through that, how much it affected the way you lived your life once you were in New York. Hmm. This notion that the city was absolutely out of control. And then what happened, of course, is the strange journey is then really, really, really quickly, it stops being out of control. It's a really, in retrospect, it's the strangest period in my life. Not just my life, in the life of millions of people. But we got lucky. The thing is, we got lucky. I got lucky. I got there in 93, and it's the actual threat is gone in a matter of years. Like we're in the late 90s, the crime rate comes down astronomically, and then it keeps falling. Crime rate is halved in, you know, by the turn of the century. I mean, it's sort of crazy. What brought it down has been a matter of debate for decades. The theory Gladwell popularized in The Tipping Point was the broken windows theory, a method of policing put into effect in the 90s by NYPD Commissioner William Bratton and Mayor Rudy Giuliani. The idea was to combat the epidemic of violent crime by targeting signs of social disorder, like broken windows. This evolved into stop and frisk, and critics of this theory argue that it isn't responsible for the drop in crime in New York City, and worse, that it negatively impacts poor communities of color by harassing the innocent, weakening trust in the police, and by creating criminal records for thousands of minor offenders, sabotaging their chances at success in society. So Bloomberg comes in in 2002, I think, and he leaves in 2013. And in his time in office, the murder rate goes from roughly 600 to 300. So he halves it again, and he continues the same policies of 
pretty aggressive policing that had been used in the previous administration. And although I don't necessarily agree with his tactics, I understand his argument. He was a guy who, like all New Yorkers, lived through that period, the worst of it, when things were out of control. And to his mind, almost anything was justified that prevented that from happening again. And the big fear of everyone is if we don't keep up this policy of aggressive policing, it's going to go, why wouldn't it go back up? Why couldn't we have 1990 all over again? Mm -hmm. And he would say, look, you know, in my time in office, I cut the crime rate from 600 to 300. That means that there are a couple of thousand people walking around the city who are alive who would otherwise be dead. I think that the benefits of those people whose lives were saved by the declining crime rate is worth the social disruption of a stop and frisk. That would be his argument. Like I said, I have some problems with this argument. I have a lot of problems with that argument, but I totally understand why he thinks that, right? Lots of people thought that. Mm -hmm. You know, what I would say is that the same strategy that may have been appropriate in 1993 and 1994 was no longer appropriate in 2003, that it's a you have to be far more subtle in how you do this. But like I said, that's what they were terrified of, right? They'd live through this nightmare and emerge somehow, and they were just so scared that it was going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And the only problem I have with those who attack Bloomberg is you at least have to put it in context. You have to remember that in living memory, 2,700 people died in New York City, were murdered in a given in one year, and now it's 300. You got to give the city props for going from, from 2,700 to 300, right? So start with that. Do you give the city props or do you give Bloomberg credit, the credit he claims for that? I mean, I know the, the Freakonomics argument is that abortion was the key factor <laughs> yeah. In, yeah, I don't. in crime decline all around, right? Yeah. The Freakonomics argument is, has not aged well. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but I think what the Freakonomics guys were trying to say was many things contribute to a fall in crime. Mm -hmm. And in that, they are absolutely correct. So do you give the police in New York 100% credit for the fall in crime in New York? No, not 100%. You know, crack epidemic waned. I actually think there's an argument, a fascinating argument about lead poisoning, mm. about how the, the Clean Air Act, which removes lead from gasoline, and lead is a pollutant of particular problem in inner cities, which causes impulsive behavior, right? Right. So there's a very strong argument that, sh that says that we began to see this crime drop around the country 20 years after the Clean Air Act, because that was the first generation of young men who grew up without being poisoned by lead. Super interesting argument. That's part of it, I think. But I think also it's clear now that more police doing a better job contributed significantly, let's just say half, to the fall in crime. And so I, you know, I'd give him partial credit, sure. I really appreciate Gladwell's humility here. Lots of things likely contributed to the fall in crime. Some of them intuitive, some counterintuitive. It's a more nuanced position than he took in The Tipping Point. But the interesting thing in all of this is when the crime rate falls, we have an opportunity to readjust our biases and we don't know how to do it, right? So right now, crime is so low in New York that it's ludicrous. We're almost at Tokyo levels of crime in New York. I mean, it's like, it's as safe as almost anywhere in the country at this point. But if you ask people on the street, did they feel safe? they would say no. Hmm. And that is what is interesting to me. And that's why the reason I chose this as my sort of personal journey is that I have been wrestling with that fact, both personally and intellectually for the last 20 years, which is I got here, I got this shock to the system. I was told to fear the young black male. The basis for that fear went away. How did I react? Hmm. Right. That to me has been something I have thought so much about. And a lot of my most recent work, which is about judging people, like this latest book, it comes out of that. It comes out of me thinking, oh, I need to systematically think about how I and others judge strangers because we're doing a terrible job. We're letting 20-year-old facts, 20-year-old fears, not facts, 20-year-old fears poison the way we think about strangers today. And that's crazy, mm. right? Totally. Really, really crazy. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. 
And it's clear that like the kind of half-life of prejudice and fear is really long. That is an insanely surprising thing to learn as an adult for me. If you'd asked me at 16, I would have said, oh, once the threat went away, people will be fine. We agree. It is crazy to let 20-year-old fears steer our judgment. And it's a problem both when we judge entire communities and when we judge individuals. I'm hardly the only exoneree still fighting decade-old distortions of my behavior. All too often, when exonerees sue states for wrongful imprisonment, DA's offices will dredge up behavioral evidence to blame the exoneree for being suspicious, framing them as the cause of their own wrongful conviction in order to deny them compensation. That is literally what happened to my co-defendant, Rafaele Solecito. That kind of thinking is what leads people to blame victims of police violence for not acting right. And it's one of the reasons for the most recent surge of racial justice activism. And it's clear that, like, the kind of half-life of prejudice and fear is really long. That is an insanely surprising thing to learn as an adult for me. How have you unpacked that over the years? I mean, like I said, I've done it in my books by kind of obsessively returning to law enforcement and crime as a subject. So that's one way in which I try to kind of publicly work out my kind of feelings about these kinds of things. And those views have been in constant evolution. The chapter in Tipping Point, my first book, where I talk about the New York City crime drop, I would not write that chapter today or anything even close to it. After the shock of that first thing in New York, I did, I think, make a kind of conscious effort to be much more aware of, familiar with, comfortable with cultures other than my own, right? I mean, from simple things like, I never listened to rap music till I got to New York. Didn't understand it. It wasn't my music, you know? Now I really like it. That's like partly a conscious choice, partly just a simple matter of being exposed to music in a new environment. I'm someone who takes music very seriously, but I, th- I don't think those are trivial choices. I think that when you experience different cultures on a day-to-day basis and you make them a part of your life, ultimately it changes the way you perceive members of that group. Um, you know, the, the glib version of this is, did Taco Bell do more to alleviate racial prejudice towards Hispanics in America than anybody else? Maybe. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, like, Taco Bell goes to, like, the whitest parts of America and says, I'm going to sell you a sanitized version of food from another culture. By the way, it's really good. And if you're eating tacos on a regular basis, maybe a Mexican is no longer someone who is other and scary and foreign. Maybe then your next move is, oh, maybe I'll go for a vacation in Cancun. Right. Because the food's not scary anymore. And then you go there and you're like, oh. It's not really any different. I wonder if there's a um, parallel here to the process of Italian-Americans sort of integrating into the broader American society alongside the sort of parallel infiltration of Italian cuisine into American cuisine. Totally agree. Because remember, when Italians come to this country, they are reviled Mm -hmm. in the beginning. They're considered, particularly Southern Italians, in fact, there's a famous, one of my favorite wacky court cases, a black woman marries an Italian in some Southern place in like the early part of the 20th century. And she is tried because she violates the miscegenation statutes, right? Black people are not allowed to marry uh-huh. white people. The case gets thrown out. Why? Because the judge says it's unclear that this Italian is white. <laughs> It's hilarious. hilarious. Totally hilarious. You know, so like, Uh, they were other. They were really deeply other. God. You know, I think you're right, Chris. It's like, there's a hundred different ways in which you escape from otherness. But one of them is, if I'm eating at an Italian restaurant twice a week, and I'm buying Chef Boyardee at home, Mm -hmm. suddenly they're not so scary. 
So the way into a xenophobe's heart is through his stomach. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very well put. And yet, Black cuisine, music, and style has been a steady and often celebrated influence in American culture for over a century. Why the persistent otherness? Some argue a culture of white supremacy, baked into every institution of our country, is to blame. Others point to counterproductive policies intended to establish and maintain social control, which set entire communities of Americans up for economic failure and social dysfunction. What's clear is Black Americans are tired of being blamed for the social dysfunctions they disproportionately fall victim to. They're opposing ideas like, what if harsh policing isn't a needed response to social dysfunction, but a primary cause of it? What if society would be better off without police entirely? Another way of framing this frustration is, why are you looking at me? Look at who holds the power and agency in this equation. I often feel that way whenever people talk about my case, and it's led me to be very wary of any temptation to ask what victims of police violence did to cause their own deaths. George Floyd didn't hold the power in that dynamic. It's the wrong question. What's the right question? How can we turn the most reliably horrible and horribly reliable tides? Not tomorrow, now. So what about living through this and then coming out of this felt like a labyrinth to you? So it all happened contrary to expectation. So you get to New York and the last thing you ever think is that the city's going to get safer. In fact, your only expectation is it's going to get less safe. No one knew how to make sense of it. No one predicted it. No one understood it. It just happened. So it took us by surprise, took me by surprise, took everyone by surprise. And it also took everyone by surprise because it happened so quickly. I would have expected if it happened, it would take a generation. It doesn't. It takes like five years. Things can change very rapidly without any warning. Speaking of things changing very rapidly without any kind of warning, we had this conversation with Gladwell back in late January. It was another world back then, before the pandemic, before George Floyd, before the election. Over the past year, we've all witnessed just how rapidly a nation, a whole world, can change, for better and for worse. The only safe bet is that no one has a clue what things will look like this time next year. A couple of times a century, I think, societies go through these experiences of being shaken out of our expectations. So I think our expectation is that changes happen slowly and they take relatively predictable paths. Why we have this expectation, I don't know, because there's so much evidence to the contrary, but I think that's our baseline. Tomorrow will be like today is our yes. kind of default assumption. Exactly. The sun will rise. So if you're uh, a businessman in the late summer of 1929, and you go through the stock market crash of October of 29, you're forcibly reminded that that fundamental human assumption is not true. So it's powerfully destabilizing. You know, and a generation is scarred pretty much for life by that, right? You know, our my grandparents, it would be your great-grandparents, who went through this, they never shook off, many of them, the after effects of that shock. That like, oh my God, mm. it went away in a moment. In New York, we had a reverse version of this shock. Things got better in a moment. But the reason I said your question is so interesting is that not until now had it occurred to me that even a reverse shock, a thing that gets shockingly better, is destabilizing. Hmm. Because it still disrupts the very comforting, based on assumption we have, that change happens slowly and predictably. It almost presents another, even more foreboding thought, which is, oh God, well, what else can change overnight? This is the question we land on. Tomorrow could be dramatically worse than today. Or it could be dramatically better. 
We're recording this voiceover on election night, <laughs> at the ultimate height of uncertainty. We're guessing that by the time you hear this, we still won't have much clarity. But who knows? Things really can change overnight. Ideas that define an era can evaporate or collapse like a house of cards. If things improve in the next four years, it will be from the conjunction of two things, counterintuitive ideas that provoke us to reevaluate our preconceived notions, like what if we could combat poverty and racial injustice just by giving everyone a basic income, and humility. And counterintuitive humility is a fine description of Gladwell at his best. The ultimate message he leaves his readers with in talking to strangers is that we should be more reserved in our judgments, less confident in our ability to know the truth. That humility will be crucial in the months and years ahead. This has been a pretty uh, super interesting. It's funny, a lot of the stuff I just had not put together until this conversation, so I'm really appreciative of it. Have we gladwelled you? <laughs> you, you have, you have gladwelled me very well. I appreciate it. Join us next time as we sit down with Samantha Geimer to talk about how her rape by Roman Polanski when she was a teen led her into a labyrinth of legal turmoil and media scrutiny that she has been navigating ever since. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At ManUnderBridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.